Prophecy is the gap between what God wants and where we are at. And, and, and the prophet's trying to smash these things together. sickness and uh, travels and things going on, it's actually been quite a while since I've preached for us here at Bartlett. So I'm glad to be up here again. I'm glad for the chance to return. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk today, the, the last time, it is actually here, we were meeting at the bridge last time too, um, I spoke, I, I introduced the, the ministry gifts in Ephesians chapter 4, so you can turn your Bibles there. We're going to look. We're going to we're going to continue to look at the apest gifting passage in Ephesians chapter four. We're going to start probably in verse four. Before we do, does everybody remember what they are? What's A? What's P? E? S? And T? Teachers. Let's just let's read the passage and. Uh, Refamiliarize ourselves. Let me get there myself. Ephesians chapter four, and let's start in um, <clears throat> let's start in verse four. There is one body and one spirit, even as you're called, in one hope of your calling, one Lord and one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. It's a very unifying introduction. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it, that, uh, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Why? Let's, let's catalog these things here. Why did he do this? For the perfecting of the saints... So we have perfecting. For the work of the ministry. For the work, let's call it for the work. For the edifying of the body of Christ. Edifying. Uh, till we all come into the unity of the faith. So it's going to produce unity. These gifts are what he's going to use to bring us into the unity of the faith. And of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man. So these are durable until we're perfect. Until perfection. This is corporately in the church. Unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's what the church, he's building, he uses these gifts to bring us to the place that the church becomes full in him. That we become an accurate reflection. That his body gets filled up. That it becomes what he intended it to be. Unto the measure of the fullness, 
stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, so it matures us, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, so it's for doctrinal purity, by the... Uh, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lay, they lay in wait to deceive. So it, it's protective. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things. There's a second category of maturing. Which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working, in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Okay, my premise in all these gifting messages is that you, if you are in Christ, have one of these gifts. One of these ministerial callings. One of these is a place where you're supposed to be working in the church. This is what every joint is working in this kind of combination to create all these things. Now, if you remember, last time we spoke, we spoke about the apostolic ministry. And I, I said then that there's a lot of other things. I was actually thinking about doing a second part to the apostolic ministry. And by and large, that's because the apostolic ministry is, is by and large unrecognized. Like many, many places don't use an apostolic ministry. At least they don't call it that, or they don't focus on it, and all these things. And, and the premise is this, that if we have these gifts that Jesus gave us, if you remember, I drew this out last time, we have apostles, we have prophets, we have evangelists, we have shepherds, and we have teachers. And the contention is that each one of these holds up this ministry that Jesus is trying to produce in his people. Each one of these is a pillar of ministry. And for far too long, especially in the Western church, this is what's supposed to hold this up. This is what's supposed to produce this. And for far too long, especially in the modern Western church, this doesn't exist. This isn't recognized. In most places, ICOC notwithstanding, in most places, this isn't recognized. And you have just these two gifts, the shepherds and the teachers, trying to hold up all this that God was trying to do. Well, that can't sustain this. This monolith has to fall if it doesn't have a foundation. Like, that comes crashing in. That doesn't work. So graphically, that's what we're talking about. This is how we want to understand that these gifts, each of them is required to produce this because we're told this is what's produced from this. So we looked at the apostolic gifting last time and we defined it. And the way we defined the apostolic ministry the last time we talked about this is that the apostolic ministry is they're, they're the curators and custodians of the DNA of the church. 
They're responsible for expansion, unity, and purity. So they're the set ones. They're the ones that the church is saying, hey, you take this, what we have and what we are, and spread it all over the world. So they do that through church planting and establishing the church outside of the local area that they came from. So that's, I'm going to let that be. I said I was going to talk more about that, but I'm not going to. We're actually going to move on. And this week we're going to talk about the prophetic. And there's a similar issue in the prophetic in that it's this ministry now struggles for lack of recognition, lack of definition, and lack of utility. Like people are not talking about and using and understanding this ministry in the church. And I hope to convince all of us today that this is a radically important ministry that the church needs. We need the prophetic giftings in the church. We need to understand it. We need to utilize it. We need to hear it. We need to, we need to be more aware of what God's trying to do through the prophetic. So <clears throat> the questions we want to ask today is, who is the prophet? What is his or her role? And why do we need them? So how do we recognize them and what do they do? That's, that's essentially what we're talking about. People often confuse that when we talk about, when we use that word prophetic, what, we often, what often gets lost in, the, in translation is that there, this is often considered just uh, people who can tell the future. Like that's kind of like the caricature of the prophetic is just telling the future. And it's certainly true that the future is within the domain of the prophetic. But where we, see, where we see future telling in the prophetic ministries, it's usually like we see miracles in the apostolic ministry. It's usually a confirmation to God's people that this is a reliable witness of what I'm trying to communicate. So when the, when the apostles in the apostolic age, I'm not, I'm not making a cessationist claim here. I'm, I'm not a cessationist. I'll clear that up just right here, right now. I believe in the gifts. I believe they continue. But we, we see very clearly the, the miracles happening in Acts in the apostolic era. And those, those serve the people that the apostles are working to, to verify the claim that they're saying that Jesus rose from the dead. And in, in a sense, the, 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 the future telling of the Old Testament prophets, like when they would make a prophecy about a future prediction, it was often for the same purpose, to, for God to mark that person as a reliable witness that he was trying to speak to his people. But this is just a method. This is, and, and I think that's the important clarification I want to take, make. This is just a tool of the prophetic. It's not their purpose. God doesn't have a ministry called the prophet foretelling the future. There is a purpose for the prophetic, and the pro purpose for the prophetic is this. The, the prophetic ministry is designed to call God's people to covenant faithfulness. So think of all the, all the prophets in the Old Testament. Right? You know, we have Moses was a prophet, David was a prophet, um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. All those prophets, right? 
they, they're, what, what all of them are doing, regardless of the methodology that's used, regardless of how God, their circumstance, their environment, their context, all of those things are relevant to those men's ministries, but all of them have the same essential purpose. And that essential purpose is to tell God's people, you are off track. You are going away from where God intended you to be. And I'm here to yell, to get in the way and say, you are going the wrong way. God told you to go over here and you guys are over here. That's the essential, that's the essential definition of the prophetic ministry. The people whose job it is to remind God's people to be faithful to their covenant. Now, in the Old Testament, that was all about Israel and the law. In the New Testament, this is all about obedience to Christ and his commands, to building the kingdom of God. That's what our covenant is about, and that's what our prophets remind us of. So we want to <clears throat> we understand this, this proper role. I, um, you know, I've had, I've had experiences with prophets before. Prophets in name and prophets in deed. I've had people prophesy things over me before, and some of them were right, and some of them weren't. And, uh, and I want to talk about how to distinguish those things and what we should think of those things as we go on. But I, I, I want to make, make it clear here and now that there's a corresponding prerogative and responsibility of the of prophets if if we if we are if we are making prophetic claims like god has sent me here to tell you you're out of the way and you need to repent and this is what needs to be set right if i'm making those kinds of claims to speak for god i'm inviting a certain kind of criticism and critical analysis what i mean by that is not personal what i mean is that we can't, because the prophetic ministry is so important, it needs to be tested. We're, we're literally told to try the spirits of the prophets. We're expected as God's faithful people, when someone makes these claims, to put those claims under a microscope and to look closely at them and to, and to investigate them. And so when you step into a prophetic ministry, there's all kinds of things that happen. There's, you know, there's, there's adversity, there's alienation there's sometimes exile in many cases in the past there's been prison and death for the sake of prophecy and and when people are making these kind of claims there's a they have to we have to take it seriously and taking it seriously means examining it for what God's trying what God may be trying to say to his people for, so so in that in that regard, one of the things I would say is that I oftentimes I have conversations with people and they say, God told me X. And I always try if I have this if I have the space and the capacity in that conversation to say, stop, stop. You said God told you X. How did he tell you that? Like what does that mean God told me? God told me to go here. God told me to take that job. Or God told me to move. Or God told me I should be a part of these people. Or God told me, God told me whatever. I want to know what you mean by that. Because there's two different ways that people use that terminology. 
One is very subjective. Like I got warm fuzzies and a chill up my back when I thought about going here or I saw some kind of sign in the heavens or the doors opened or didn't open. Some people use those kinds of experiences and they, they translate that God told me. Well, that's, that, to me, that's not God telling you. That's feeling like, that's feeling an impression that God's maybe trying to lead you in a direction. And in my own life, I try to be careful about this terminology. God told me is the vernacular of the prophet. Like, if you use that expression, you should be careful with it. Those are, those are dangerous words to say. Because you're making a claim that what's coming out of your mouth is from God. And it's very easy to blaspheme in that category. What happens very often is that people want something to happen and it's easy for them to confuse either their subjective desires or their hopes and ambitions and sanction that under God's word. And that is dangerous. That's, that's literally using God's name in vain. To say that God told me there should be some kind of corroboration. You have to be able to at least put it up to scrutiny and say, like, no, like, I'm sure, like, through the Spirit of God, he told me to do X. I've had some of those experiences in my life, especially when I was younger, where I would, I would get up in the night and God would say, I want you to go here. And I would go there and something would happen. It doesn't happen a whole lot in my life now. It's pretty rare. But there was this phase of my life, especially in my early Christianity, where those things happened a lot. And, and even then, even when I was having those experiences where I'd, I'd get up in the morning and I'd pray in my closet and I would feel the Spirit of the Lord saying, I want you to go here to this place. And I'd rearrange my schedule and I'd go to that place and there would be something for me to do. Those kinds of experiences, even in the midst of those kinds of experiences, I was very careful with the terminology to say, I think that God wants me to do something is different than to say, God told me to tell you X. So I just want to preface all this with that kind of, I don't think that it's necessary that, that people in a prophetic ministry are always saying, God told me to tell you. Like, that's not necessary for the prophetic ministry. But when people use that kind of terminology, it needs to be tested. And we shouldn't use it flippantly. That's, that's my main point here. Um... The other way of talking about God leading us, even in the prophetic sense, is I feel like God wants me to whatever. That's a perfectly valid thing to say because we all have our own. It's not wrong to have subjective experience with God. In fact, I would probably make the argument it's, it's probably wrong not to have subjective experiences with God. Like we should be having this kind of relationship with God where we feel like he's leading us one way. And we should talk about that with the church. Like if you have a big decision in your life or you're concerned about something or you're seeing things that you don't like or, or have fear about or you're worried that the church is going a wrong direction in a case, it's okay to, you, as, it, as a person who is in the prophetic ministry, it's okay to say, I'm concerned about this because this, and it doesn't seem in line with what God's doing. That's a perfectly appropriate prophetic message. It's much lower leverage than God told me to tell you, you need to repent here. Um, those subjective experiences, we can navigate and we can like, we can look at, well, why are you feeling that way? What might God be trying to show you? What might God tr be trying to show us? Those are all valid manifestations of a prophetic ministry. It's sometimes a shortcut for people to try to leverage God's word into that so that they can make the point. And that's a dangerous thing. Prophets should not do this.
Um, why, why is the prophetic ministry important? What, what's God trying to do with this ministry in the church? Why is it? I, I, I'm kind of partial to claim. I, I, I mentioned it before in the last message, and I'll mention it here. I'm in debt to a lot of the terminology of this, of these, these ideas that we're talking about. To that Alan Hirsch book, the Permanent Revolution, he has a lot of good uh, insights and graphs and explanations of these things. But I'm inclined to his notion that that these ministries are correlated. And what I mean by that is that um, A leads to P, leads to E, leads to S, and leads to T. Like they're nested in each other. Like. The, the capacity to do this well comes from this, and it comes from this, and it comes from this, and it comes from this. So think about that with me for a moment, right? So the apostolic ministry is the sending out. It's the creating the space for the church to live. Like, it's expanding the territory of the kingdom of God. There wasn't a church in this place, and now there is. There wasn't a church in this place, and now there is. So now we have these households of faith. Now we have a city with the church in it. That's what, that's what this, job, this ministry is doing. And, and presumably, if he's doing his job well, that church there is going to be rooted and grounded in, in the historic faith and in the things that she needs to thrive as Jesus' people in that place. And, and because he's creating a new people, like, like look at Paul's ministry, there, there wasn't a church in, in Corinth and then there was. And because there's now a new covenant people, those covenant people need to be reminded what the premise of their covenant is. They need to be reminded how to stay on track with the God that they now serve. Their new God, who they didn't know before, they didn't have access to before, they need someone to help them stay on the path that, that, that he's trying to lead them. So the prophetic becomes necessary for that covenant people. You also need to grow. Because the whole purpose for the church is to expand the gospel and to be moving on in the local territory and extra local with the gospel message. So you need the evangelistic people within the church to be making new disciples, bringing people in. And when those people come in, they have lots of messy problems like all of us do. And so they need shepherding so that they can learn in their individual lives how to work out their faith with fear and trembling, how to grow in Christ, and how to become more mature, how to get over their old problems and their traumas and their difficulties and grow in Christ. And the teachers in the center of all that are, are giving us the knowledge and instruction to know why all these things work, how they function, and what they should be. And so there's a way to understand all these things as nested giftings. That the one creates the space for the other. And I think that's a good way to think about this. So what does, let's examine this prophetic ministry. One of the functions, um, one of the reasons we need a prophetic ministry, and I think this one's particularly in our setting, here in Hellenistic, in intellectual Boston of all places, the prophet reminds us that we're a supernatural people, that we're a people in contact with God, with the divine, that we're not doing things that, that revelation can come in the church, that 
God's cutting through the natural world and doing things that we couldn't do without his spirit, without his presence, that we're not just really good at self-help. We're not just really smart and we're not just really wise people that know how the world works, but that we're the people who are connected to God and his spirit. And we have supernatural aid and help. And that's why we do what we, what we do. That's why we live the way we live. That's why we're connected to each other and we see the things and we do the things that we do because God and his presence is with us. And he, missed, he, he uses the prophetic class to speak to us in ways that remind us that this is more than really good self-help. That it's something else involved. Another reason for, um, in other words, we expect God to speak to us. Like we're opening a conduit to the divine. We want and expect God to speak to his people. That's what we're saying when we believe in the prophetic ministry. Second, <clears throat> the real job of the prophet is to monitor and call God's people to obedient covenant faithfulness. We, ha we need to be reminded of who we are and what our job is. And, and it takes agitation to do that. There, there are so many reasons to become complacent, to become lazy, to become at ease, to live in luxury, to... To, to do what's safe. There are so many reasons surrounding us that want to pull us off the path. You know, the, the Pilgrim's Progress analogy, like the path, like there's a really easy path and it looks like it's right next to the, to the path. And so why not walk on that path for a while? And the prophetic ministry is there to say, don't take the easy path. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget why you're here. Don't get caught up in Vanity Fair. Don't get distracted by the world and its baubles. Don't get consumed by your sin. Don't get out of the way. And we need that reminder. We need that. I need that. You need that. We need to be reminded who we are, why we're here, and what our job is. And not only that, but we also need to be reminded of God's promises and his provision. The uh, I, this is a, point, a whole separate point later, but the prophetic ministry is not purely negative. There, there is a calling away from sin and away from distraction, and in that sense, the prophetic ministry can come across kind of negative. But it also has a really important positive function. To When you remind God's people who they are, you're not just reminding them to do right by God. You're also reminding them that God does right by them that he is their God and that he's made promises to his people, that he's leading and guiding and directing and he's using this ministry to do it. And so it has both this negative and positive quality that it calls us to, uh, calls us to faithfulness and it reminds us and kind of pushes us forward. Like sometimes the prophetic ministry is just to kind of kind of give a little kick, like, hey, you guys are being lazy. Like, come on, God wants so much more for you. God has a lot of work for you to do. And the, the prophetic is just to encourage us. Hey, we have, we have all this supply and all of this resource and all of this access, and you could be doing so much more. That's a prophetic message. And it's one that we need often. And thirdly, we need the prophets because they have a... They have a gift and a capacity to cut through the heart, to cut through the excuses, to cut through the ambivalence, to cut through apathy, 
and to get right to the heart of things. In fact, in, in Corinthians, you know, when it talks about this prophetic ministry, uh, in, in like the corporate setting, it says that they'll come in you and the, the, if the unlearned come in and, and people prophesy, that they'll fall on their face and say, God is in you of truth because the secrets of their heart are made manifest. Like the prophetic ministry is to cut away all, all of the other stuff and get right to the root of the issue. And you see this very much in Jesus' own prophetic ministry when he deals with individuals and with groups, when he pushes everything out of the way and says, here's what the real problem is. Here's what's really at play in your heart. So an individual case would be the rich young ruler. Go and keep the law. These have I done since my youth up. Yeah, okay, one thing you lack. Go and sell that you have and give to the poor and come and follow me. He's cutting to the heart. He's cutting past all the excuses, all the justifications, all the hype, all the fluff, and saying, here's what the problem is. And that's, the, that's, the, that's an essential prophetic ministry, is to put the finger right where it hurts. And that's why often the prophets are hated, because they touch the thing that hurts. It's why Jesus was hated. This is an important thing for me when I think about how to respond to and look for this gifting, which is another thing we'll talk about a little later, is that these literally come from Christ. Like, like what, what, that whole passage in, in, in Ephesians, the beginning of that, about the descending and ascending, like, it's kind of funny out of place. Like, I don't know. I often read that and I'm like, what's, what's, why is that there? Like you, you could easy make this whole passage work without that parenthetical thing about ascension and descension. And what I think one of the reasons that that part of the passage is there, I get the sense that like Jesus is literally mining these things out of the earth. Like it took his death and descending into the center of the earth. Like it's down there in that low point of his whole existence you know, um, who is it? It's um, Matthew Bates makes mention of the V-shaped gospel, you know, that Jesus starts way up here in heaven, and he comes way down. He goes as low as a person can go. He actually even goes low. He goes down into death. He's the firstborn of the dead. He goes as he, he comes from on high. From the divine. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Like he's he's up here as high as can be. And he goes as low as can be. Like past, like forget the incarnation. That's that's terrible. Like imagine being God and then in a manger. Like Mary's child. Some poor Palestinian kid in occupied Palestine under Roman oppression. Like nobody knows you. Nobody cares about you. No one knows anything about you. You're just a bum. You're just the refuse of the earth. Like no form nor comeliness that anybody should desire him. Nothing special. Nothing. 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 That's what he is. Nothing. And he goes past that into a shameful death on a cross with the sins of the world on his shoulders. Past death, worse death than any of us have, into death itself at the very lowest pits. And this is how far he has to go to find these gifts and bring them back to us through death. Now, Jesus has a prophetic ministry. We see him exercising a prophetic ministry. He went down into the belly of the earth and he brought forth these gifts and gave them to the church. What does it mean when I don't want to listen to that? 
What does it mean when all that work that Jesus did in providing these things for his church and, and in his grace and in his mercy and his kindness, he sends us prophets, us to speak. How, like, okay, go back in the Old Testament, right? And you read that and you read Jeremiah. Remember, like the, the captivity is coming and, and there's Jeremiah to tell everybody what God's doing. Here's why this is happening. Here's what's going to happen. Here's who's coming. Here's how you should respond. Here's what's going to happen next. And everybody hates him. And you just look at you like, you wicked, wicked people. God did all that. He said all that stuff. And he even tells Jeremiah, he says, I'm going to send you to speak to them, but they're not going to listen to you. Why? Why, why bother? Why does God bother? Because he loves his people. And he's not going to let them go without a warning. And he does all that to them. And they, they despise him and they take him captivity. They say, we're going to listen to you. Even after the captivity, they say, tell us what we should do. And he says, okay, I'll tell you what God says. And they say, no, 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 we don't believe you. And they, they kidnap Jeremiah and take him to Egypt with him. And then he prophesies again. He can't help it. And all that, and you look at it like, you wicked people. God's working so hard to try to speak to you and try to correct you and try to put you on the right path. And you won't hear, you stiff-necked and rebellious people. That's the conclusion. And we're not any different. If we don't make room for the prophetic ministries in our life, if we don't make room for God to send people to speak to us, and how many missed opportunities have we had? How many people have had a prophetic witness in their life where God was saying, please, I just want you to listen. I just want to amend your path. I want to put you back in the right place. And you won't hear. And that's the role of the prophetic, and that's why we need it. And, when I, and, and, and the reason I'm afraid, I'm afraid of missing the prophets. I'm afraid of not listening to them. Because I know it's the last, it's the last step it's the last step before captivity. It's the last step before destruction. It's the last step before judgment is the prophets. It's his last warning sign. Stop. The bridge is out ahead. You can't go this way. And if you miss that call, if you miss that warning, if you don't heed to that ministry, it's a train wreck. It's the mercy of God that sends prophets. It's the hardness of men's heart that won't hear them. Prophets are important for the health of the church. They're the canaries in the coal mine. And there's, a, there's, a, there's this, like, you read different places in the Bible, there's this kind of, like, innate desire for the prophetic. Look at, look at Numbers chapter 11 with me. I love this story. You know it. The conclusion is in 29. <clears throat> 24, And Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord and gathered the 70 men of the elders of the people and set them round about the tabernacle. And the Lord came down in a cloud and spoke unto him and took of the spirit that was upon him and gave it unto the 70 elders. And it came to pass that when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied and did not cease. But there remained two of the men in the camp, 
The name of the one was Eldad, and the name of the other was Medad. And the Spirit rested upon them, and they were of them that were written, but went not out into the tabernacles, and they prophesied in the camp. And there ran a young man and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad do prophesy in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Moses, one of his young men, answered and said, My Lord Moses, forbid them. And Moses said unto him, Envious thou for my sake? Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. And Moses got him into the camp, and he and the elders of Israel. It's a beautiful story of, of, of why Moses is so precious in the sight of the Lord. Like, there's no envy and no guile with him. He really has, at the heart of his desire, the good of God's people. And it's a beautiful thing about Moses, and we see it here in his innate desire that God's people would prophesy because he knows what this, where the, the spirit that this comes from, and he knows the effect that the prophets have on the people. And the more, the better. Because they should have a consistent unifying message. If it's about covenant faithfulness, then they're all speaking about the same thing. It's just that they're applying these things in individual cases and in their specific contexts. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. That's a good Old Testament example. Let's look here. <clears throat> I don't, um, I know this is a little confusing. I don't mean to, uh, I, I talk about these different lists of the, of the giftings, Romans, Corinthians, and Ephesians as separate categories, and we should, I think. But, but there is some relevance back and forth across them. Prophets are in all three of them. You know that. So there's a motivational prophet, there's a ministerial prophet, and there's a manifestation prophet. Like, it's the only gift that's in all three lists. Regardless of that different functioning, this is interesting to me. Look at 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 1. Follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that ye may prophesy. For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. Let me pause for a second. There's some controversy about cessationism and what gifts and what these things are for today, and especially about how tongues fit into that, to me, this is the proof positive case that there is a supernatural manifestation of a gift of tongues and what its purpose is, and it's described right here. For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaks who? Not unto men, but to who? But unto God. For no man understandeth him, howbeit in the spirit he speaks mysteries. That's a very clear description of the gift of, pro of tongues to me. Like, is it a language? Are people speaking Spanish when they go to Mexico? No. It's an unknown tongue. He speaks not unto men, but unto God in mysteries. That's done proof text right there. Like, that's a description of the gift of tongues. But he that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. There's a purpose. Edification, exhortation, and comfort. That's what the prophets speak to men. He that speaketh in an own tongue edifieth himself, but he that prophesies edifieth the church. I would that you all spake with tongues, but rather that you prophesied. For great excuse me, for greater is he that prophesieth than he that speaketh with tongues except he interpret that the church may receive edifying. I'm not going to get into all that. We'll look at the manifestation gifts another time. But the point is that 
this prophetic calling, this prophetic gift, this prophetic ministry, it's supposed to communicate. That's what it is. It's communication from God to his people. And it's, it's something that, God, that the apostle wants. I want you to prophesy. We're not trying to hold this back and restrict it. Uh, one of the early... One of the early schisms in the church, the Montanists, um, they broke with, with the rest of the church over the gift of prophecy. Uh, it was a big issue uh, in, the, in the fourth century that, that <laughs> the, as the church becomes more rigid, structural, and hierarchical, these things like the prophets are outliers, like they get in the way of that system and structure, and it's making things uncomfortable. And, and Hippolytus mentions it, that the bishop in Rome was, was forbidding prophecy in the church. Uh, like it, Paul literally says, forbid not prophesying. Um, no, he says, despise not prophesying, forbid not tongues. So the, the, the uh, Montanists, they, they very much believe in prophecy in the church, and they break with the rest of the church because... Prophecy is being outlawed in the church. It's more complicated than that, and there's, there was a lot of problems with the Montanist movement. I'm just pointing that out, that prophecy was very much a part of the church, and it's one of the early schisms is over how this gift is, can be used in and not in the church. So we should want to hear prophecy. We should want God to speak to us. We should be eager to hear what God's doing through the prophets. We should question is, are we? When we look at how the prophets work in the church, they're answering two main questions for us. The questions they're answering is, who is God? Like, because they describe him. They describe his desire. They describe his will. They describe his intentions. They describe his plan. They describe his covenant. They describe his calling. They, they tell us who God is and what he's requiring of us. What does he want of us? So they tell us who he is, his character, his caliber, his holiness, and they tell us what we should be doing in relation to that. One way to think of this is that One of the neat things about the prophets is that they have a capacity to hold two things. On the one hand, they see God and his, and his will or intentions, what he wants. And so that's one thing. That's a big thing. The other thing is they, they see the people. And what's really significant is that they can describe the gap between these two things. This is where prophecy is. Prophecy is the gap between what God wants and where we are at. And, and, and the prophet's trying to smash these things together.
I, uh, one way I heard this, this described is that the prophets, they see the people and where they're at, but they hear God. Their ear is towards God and their eyes are toward the people. That's a good way to think of it. I think that's a good insight. And in this sense, and I, I think that these gifts, they're helpful almost, sometimes it's as helpful to contrast them as it is to, to examine them. And in this sense, the shepherds are almost the exact opposite of the prophets. The, pro, the shepherds, they, they hear the people and they see God. They're like, they're down here talking with people and their issues and their problems. And they're, they're looking at God. This is where we want to go. And they hear the people. And the prophets on the other side, they hear God and they see the people. Like, you can see how those two things, like in combination, are really beautiful. Like, somebody, people need to be heard, right? Like, what's hurting inside of you? What's broken? How, how is this happening? Why is this happening? That's the shepherd's job. He wants to hear the people. But he wants to hear them in a way that he can see that they're going towards God. And the other side... The prophets are hearing God. What, what do you want? Oh, okay, I understand. I understand you, God. I understand what your desire is. I understand what your heart is. And I see the people, and they're not there. That's how these things function. It's kind of crude, but it, I think it's a helpful analogy. So the prophets see and describe this gap and try to bring it together. There's some things that this ministry implies about, about people that walk in, in a prophetic ministry. <clears throat> One of the things that it implies is that for, for, for people in a prophetic ministry, emotions, relationships, and people are secondary. That sounds really rough when you say it that way. But they have a vision and a heart for what God is and his holiness and what he wants to do. And everything is secondary to that. They don't see anything else in competition with that. It's the number one goal and focus for the people who are the prophets. Again, sometimes it's lonely and alienating, isolating. I don't think it has to be. I mean, the ideal, there are even phases in, in Israel's history where she honors her prophets and listens to them and gives them place and honor and esteem and privilege and access. Like, those are good times in Israel when the prophets are heard and respected and honored. And it can be so in the church too. It doesn't require isolation, but when things are bad, it almost always requires some kind of alienation for the people who are calling for, for correction and, and truth. And, and these people, those, the way people think about them, the way people interact with them, their relationships, they're secondary. This can mean sometimes these people have, a, they're lower on the EQ scale. They're, they're, not, they're not good emotion readers. And they're, sometimes they're not even good people readers. Idolatry and disobedience and comfort and ease are the common enemies of the prophets. They, they hate those things. 
because they know that those things, those things in particular, idolatry and disobedience and ease, these are the things, like think of the, especially the minor prophets talking about ease, when you lie on, on ivory couches and all these things that he rebukes the kings and the people of Israel for, like your ease is causing you to hate God. These are three common enemies of the prophetic. Idolatry, things that take God's place. Disobedience, the choice for self instead of honoring God. And ease, because ease and idolatry are related. Often, these people in this ministry find themselves in conflict with instead of cooperation with the institutional church. Again, that's not of necessity. If the church is is doing right, there's space for the there's space for the prophets to be honored and heard. In fact, in Corinth, they're a regular part of the Sunday meeting. There's time and space for the prophets to stand up and speak. It's important for me, I think, to communicate in regards to all this that we, I don't want to overstate this case. I think that I can say this. Because, because Jesus provided these things for the church and because they're a part of what perfects, what's working to perfect us and to create what Jesus wants out of his people, I think we can say that we cannot faithfully remain the people of God without access to the prophetic. Like, we need the prophetic ministry to help us stay on track. We need these people to have room and place among us and to exercise their gifts, our brothers and our sisters who are called to this ministry. Let's clear that up, too. Are there women prophets? Are there women prophets? Absolutely. Why are you ladies covering your heads? Prayer and prophecy. That's the reason. Our women are supposed to prophesy. I mean, not everyone prophesies, but we're, we're making space for every sister to have access to the prophetic through the Christian veiling. That's, that's kind of the point. We want, and Anna is one of the first people to testify of who Jesus is as the Messiah. Philip's daughters were prophets. There's... There's an important role for prophetic women. Um, we need men and women who have these gifts because our, our, our nature, there's, like I said before, there's so many things that bend us to, to want to exclude the things that make us uncomfortable. I don't like being told things I don't want to hear, and nobody does. You have to create a special place and category to be discomfited, to be made uncomfortable. And there's a way to lean into that as God's people, just like there's a way to lean into loving your enemies. That's not a natural tendency. Some of the things that we're doing are not natural. And one of those things is to cultivate a desire to hear what's wrong instead of just be told what's right. And I think it's actually, this is why, this is one of the reasons room for the prophetic ministries is an important like barometer for the health of the church. It's an important metric because it shows that God's people want to be right. 
They don't want to just be comfortable. They don't want to just be told that everything's okay. They want to see and to hear what's out of line with God. Where are we missing it? Where are we in error? Where are we all out of the way? Where are we, where are we not meeting the mark? Where is God not happy with us? And, and I recognize that I'm not always the best at seeing that about myself. And so I need somebody to have room. And you think of like, go back to all these different like methods that the prophets use in the Old Testament, like Nathan, and he comes to David and he tells him the story of the man who has one sheep, right? And he loves it like a daughter and he keeps it in his house. And his rich neighbor with folds and flocks takes his one sheep and slaughters it. And David is angry. He's justly angry. Thou art the man. Like David needed somebody to break through all of his own justifications, his own sin, his own self, his own whatever was getting in the way of his heart that used to be right with God, that used to know his law, that used to love his, his master. And all this stuff clouded and got in the way. And that holy man sinned horribly before God. And he needed a prophet to come and say, you're that guy. And the prophetic message often, like when it's done, when it's heard, it hurts. And that's not an easy thing to create space for. How do you create space for somebody telling you something that's going to hurt you? It's not a normal thing to do. Please, tell me something that's going to make me really upset. I had a meeting the other day, Charlton was with me, where we had to tell somebody some hard things. And, and I started that meeting thinking about these exact ideas, like how do you have a meeting with somebody where you know, I know that I know that I know the things that I'm supposed to say in this meeting are things that you do not want to hear. And I was really blessed in that meeting because the, the brother we were talking to came with an open heart. He came, it, it's, it's not like it was just like unchecked or unfiltered, like whatever you say is right, but really willing to consider and hear things that he didn't want to hear. That's wisdom. It's wisdom to hear from a prophetic message. <clears throat> Let's 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 examine the um, let's make a list of things to consider for the potential prophet. Like if if you were called to this ministry, what would make it? What what are the things that you would want to consider? How, do, how would you do this job well? What are the things that you would, if you, were, if you were in this capacity and in this place, how would you do that effectively and in, in a God-honoring way? Some things to consider for the potential prophet is that uh, criticism does not equal cynicism. The 
prophets have an incredi- incredibly precise vision. They, they see well. But they're hopeful. The reason they do what they do is because they're hopeful. And I think that's why, that's why that thing happens with Jeremiah, why God tells him they're not going to hear. Because it, I think he knows it would have broken Jeremiah's heart if he didn't prepare him for it. Because the, the prophet has a hope that, pe- that God's people will listen. Amen. And we want to remain hopeful in, in a prophetic message. We want to trust that if God's calling us to speak to somebody, if God's calling us, if he's putting a message in our mouth, that he wants to break through to those people, that his heart is to them, and he wants to correct them. He wants his lost sheep to be back in the fold. He wants them back in the way. And so we have to have, the prophetic has to have this like undying hope that somehow God's going to break through. He's going to break through this sin. He's going to break through this obstacle. He's going to break through this stumbling block and make a way for God's people to hear. Another important lesson for the prophet is that the spirit of the prophets is subject unto the prophets. What does that mean? Kind of a weird expression. It means that you're still in control of you. Like, a lot of the prophetic, especially in the Old Testament, is connected to kind of these ecstatic states. You know, like, even in, in the New Testament, right, in Acts, when it says that people were baptized and they spoke in tongues and they prophesied. Like, there's some kind of ecstatic nature around these things. Like, they just kind of happen to people. And they get into a state of prophecy. where And that's what Paul's trying to correct in Corinthians. Like, it's getting out of control. And what he's reminding them of, it's not okay to be out of control as a prophet. You are still in control of you. Like, you can't just go flailing and flapping your arms and screaming and hooting and hollering just because you're a prophet. You still have, you're still in control of you. And, and, and what I think that means in another way of saying it is that, like, you're in control of your emotions. You're in control of your own obedience. You're in control of how you respond to people. And so a lot of times people, people who feel a prophetic calling, they get kind of whipped into a frenzy and they just go, you know, cutting with a sword at anybody who they think is against them. And, and what this message is, you're responsible for how you respond. Just because you have a message that's important, even if your message is from God, that doesn't mean you can go hacking and hurting people and t- pay no mind to the consequences and, and go, you know, you, you're a jerk to everyone that comes across your path. You're always screaming hellfire at everyone you see. And you're just like, well, I'm just a prophet. What, what am I supposed to do? It's a prophetic message. It's a prophet's life. No, you're responsible for that. Yeah. You're responsible for how you respond to people. You're responsible for how you're caring for people. I've met people who say they're prophets who've run their own wife and children off. You're responsible for that. That's your fault. That's not because you're a prophet. That's because you're a jerk. It's because you don't know how to control your emotions. It's because you don't know how to speak well to people. It's because you don't know how to be kind. That's a different thing. It's important for prophets uh, to know that That they have weaknesses that they can't see. It's kind of intoxicating to hear from God. It can be. When you hear from God and you know it's right and you know it's Him and you see it come to pass, 
it's kind of intoxicating. It's a lot for a man to handle. To be a vehicle for God to do something is intoxicating. And it can be too much for people, and they can get overwhelmed with that, and they can lose sight of their own weaknesses and their own frailty, and they can think they're all that because God's speaking something to them. And many people fall away from this. The story of the old prophet of Bethel is a good example of a prophet with problems. There's plenty of them in the Bible, but that's a good one, right? Like, remember the young prophet goes and he prophesies against the king and he's told by the spirit, don't go anywhere. Don't eat anything. Don't drink anything when you're over there. You go straight there. You tell what I told you and you come straight back. And the old prophet sends his messenger and says, I'm from the old prophet and he wants you to come to by his house. The spirit says to come into his house. And now the young prophet has to decide, do I listen to, the old, do I listen to what God told me or do I listen to the old prophet? And he goes, and then he's eaten by a lion on the way because he disobeyed. In the middle of a prophecy, he gets turned out of the way. Prophets have problems too. Just because God's speaking through you in one way doesn't mean you can't mistake in another. Because of this job, the stakes are very high. What I mean by that is when a prophet's wrong, it's catastrophic. Because of the things that he implies, because of the things that he says, because of the things that he's supposed to do, when a prophet's wrong, we don't call it an error. What do we call it? We have a whole category for it. A false prophet. A false prophet. And a false prophet is just as dangerous as a prophet is holy. And there's very little room for error in the prophetic ministry. The stakes are very high. And it's important that this ministry is carried out in prayer, in fear, in trembling, in holiness, examining your own faults, lest you fall. The, the capacity to examine your own faults first is, I think there's actually a prophetic precedent for this. You know, when Isaiah has his vision, the first thing that happens is the angel goes with the tongs and takes a coal off of the altar of God and touches it to Isaiah's lips. And he says, for I am a man of unclean lips. The prophet says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And he has to be purged with the fire of God's altar. His mouth, the instrument that God's going to use, has to be purged with a fire with a coal from the altar of God before he can be used and before he can see what he's going to see and say what he's going to say. The mouth, the tongue is a fire and it's unruly and it's dangerous. And this ministry is all about the mouth. It's all about the tongue. And the prophet has to, just like Isaiah, he has to have his mouth purged with a, with a coal from the altar. He has to be purged with fear and trembling before God so that his message can be correct, accurate, and not miss the mark. Every prophet, every person in a prophetic memory, uh, ministry, 
should memorize 1 Corinthians 13. Though I know all mysteries, though I give my body to be burned, and I have not love, it is nothing. Nothing. It doesn't matter what kind of fire you can call down. It doesn't matter what kind of future you can tell. It doesn't matter who you can correct or who you can withstand to the face. None of those things matter if it's not done from a heart of love. The prophet is not exempt from the need to love. In fact, his ministry doesn't work, and he can't have this hope if he doesn't come from a place of love. I think it's important for the people in the prophetic ministry to understand that they should invite testing. We're not supposed to trust people that just say, take my word for it. We're supposed to try and test. Paul himself blesses the Bereans for, for taking his words and testing them with the scriptures. And we're not better than him. There's no place where we can say, you're just supposed to take my word for it. We should invite a critical analysis of what we're saying and the claims that we're making in a prophetic ministry because we believe that God will, God's the source of it. In 1 John 1, 4, 1, it says this exact thing. You have to turn there, but I'll read it real quick to you. Um, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. <clears throat> He's telling us, you've got to try this stuff. But don't just take people's word for it. It needs to be tried. The last thing I would say to people in a prophetic ministry is the way prophets communicate is as important as what they communicate. And prophets do not like this message. It's kind of funny to give a message to prophets they don't want to hear. But it's true. The way is as important as what? Because a prophet is a communicator. He wants a message communicated to somebody. And he needs to take some care and concern for how he's heard. And that doesn't mean that he should change his message to, to, to make people happy. It means that his message should be heard. It means that he should be understood. And, and, and that means that the message comes in different ways to different people. And that's a hard thing for prophets to understand. They think they can just, oftentimes they think they can just shout, and if people don't hear, it's their fault. And that's not always the case. How, here's, here's, okay, so now here's another consideration. How do we make room for the prophetic in our churches? 
How do we make room for a prophetic message in our own life? How do we make sure that God has access to us through this ministry, that we're open and ready to receive, that we're saying in real and legitimate ways, God, send us a prophet. I want to know if I'm out of the way. I want to know the places where I'm not right. I want to know when I'm missing your marks. How do we make room? For the prophets. One. We should expect and hope that God will correct us where we're wrong. There's a lot of ways that this that you can interact with this in your own life and we can corporately as a people together. But there should it's like When you, when you talk to a scientist, right, we have some brothers and sisters who are in the sciences here, and, and one, of the, one of the things that people that really geek out on science is that they love the scientific method because it proves what's wrong. And like, they, you know, these researchers, they spend, you know, you talk to Tuong and the research that he did, or Kojo and the research he did. I, Kojo's cut up a million worms to try to figure out what's wrong and what's right. And the, the process that they go through and the rigor and the discipline that they have to try something and, because what they're trying to find is what's wrong. Here's the idea, what's wrong with it? Here's the idea, what's wrong with it? And that process, that, that, that way of seeing, that philosophy is about invalidating a wrong idea. And there's something beautiful about that. There's something, I mean, look at the world we live in because of that process. Like, all kinds of things are in our life because people tried to find out what's wrong with an idea. And there's something noble about, about our desire to know where we're wrong. We should, we should expect and hope, like, I want, to, I want to be falsifiable. I want God to be able to tell me I'm wrong. So there's a couple of things that that implies, right? It implies some humility, like A, I might be wrong about stuff. B, I trust God that he's a good father and if I'm being faithful to him, he'll be faithful to me to show me. I had a really important experience in my life one time. Erica was having a lot of health problems and we were worried at that point, um, this was after Lazarus was born, we were worried one of the doctors was telling us that she needed a hysterectomy. And we had spent so much, we had invested so much of our life into having children. And we had, we had taken such kind of like reckless steps of faith in regards to having children. We felt really like conflicted, like, should we take this into our own hands? Do we, are we going to make a decision where we won't be able to have any more children and all this stuff? And I had a brother who came to me and he talked to me at that time in my life. And I was really, we, both Eric and I were really struggling with what should we do with this? And he said, Matthew, I know you. And I know, Sister Erica, I know what you guys have done. I know how you love your children. I know how you love your family. Like, instead of being so tormented and conflicted, why don't you just trust God that he's a good father? Why don't you just say, here's what we know, and we have to walk in that. We have to walk according to what we know. And if we're going the wrong way, I trust that I'm open to hear from God that I'm wrong, that he'll lead me in the right way. There's all kinds of... these are." 
like this is a good opportunity. That was a prophetic moment. He was reminding me of the promises of God's protection for his people, that if you're faithful to him, and he was pointing out to me places where I had been faithful, he said, because of your faithfulness to God, you can trust him to be faithful to you. You can trust that if you're doing everything you know to do, when, you're in, when you start to go the wrong way, God will help you and put you back in the right path. It made all the difference for us at that point in our lives. And we were able to let go and say, okay, we don't have to agonize over this and try to, f we just have to do what we know and, and God will lead us the rest of the way. So this desire to, to, to be shepherded by God, to, to find out where we're wrong and to expect him that he'll, he'll show us. And then that causes you to look for it, right? So then when you're, so then I'm in that category, I'm in that place with Eric and I walking forward, we're doing everything we know how to do and we're alert we're attentive. We're saying, we know we're in a scary place. Like, let's look for where God's speaking. And it creates a vigilance and an awareness that's healthy. When, so one, we want to expect correction. When God quits correcting his people, it's a bad, bad, bad place. Whom he loveth, he chastens. And if you're chasing God, then you're not bastards. Okay. Um, when people tell you things that you don't like to hear, slow down. There's all this, all this natural tendency to bristle to push back, to, to reject, to defend, to justify, to say you don't understand, or I'm special, or you don't know what you're talking about. When those things rise up in you, when something comes that you don't want to hear, develop some discipline to slow that down. Slow it way down. When somebody comes and tells you something you don't want to hear, here's the appropriate response. That's hard to hear, but thank you for sharing it with me. I really need to pray about it. Now, you can say that as an excuse and then ignore whatever you've just been told. And you can sound really holy while doing it. Or you can really make that a matter of prayer. And you can really take that message to your closet and say, God, are you trying to tell me something? I, I thought it was okay. I thought this wasn't an issue, but here it is. And it's from a brother, it's from a sister. I want to put it in your hands and say, show me, I want to hear. Okay, so you start with one, an expectation for correction. Now I'm hearing something I don't want to hear. And I put it in God's hands and I say, are you trying to tell me something? I, I need to know. I've been expecting you to correct me if I'm wrong. I need, you to sh I need you to help me understand this. Is this right? Is this something I need to be doing differently? Is this something I need to be hearing? Is this something I need to be receiving? And really put those things in. Don't ever take it flippantly. If your brother or sister, and the closer they are, the more important this is, somebody who knows your life and walks with you, if they tell you something you don't want to hear, you have got to take that to the closet. You've got to be serious about that. I, I know us, and I know our people. And we're not playing games here. Nobody's out to just whatever. If, if my brother comes to me and says he has a concern in my life, you owe it to him, 
to your people, to your God, to take that seriously. That doesn't mean it's always right. It means you have to take it seriously. It means you have to leave room for that to, to have potential to change your direction. I've succeeded at this sometimes in my life, and I've failed at it sometimes in my life. And when I've failed, it's been problematic. When you slow that down, when you bring it to God, there's a, there's a process that you should think through. Like, is this message, is it biblical? Is it in line with the scriptures? Is it God-honoring? Like, is God the source for what the, what the problem is being highlighted? Am I, do I have a heart to hear? Do I want to hear if I'm wrong? Somebody tells you something you don't want to hear, and you take it to your closet. One of the questions you should be asking yourself is, do I want to hear? If I was wrong, let's, let's, let's do a thought experiment and assume he's right. Would I want to hear if he was right? You have to evaluate that for yourself. And, and, and one thing that I do, what would it take for God to get my attention? If this was an issue in my life that God wanted to address, what would it take for him to get my attention and to correct me? Am I making it easy for God to correct me? Or am I making it difficult for God to correct me? Three, practice knowing your faults. You know one of the dangerous, most dangerous statements and sentiments I hear commonly uttered is no one's perfect. Every time somebody says that, I say, what is not perfect about you? I don't want to know general humanity's not doing well. Why are you saying that? What's not perfect with you? What's not perfect with me? I don't want to excuse my faults under some umbrella of fallen humanity. What is your problem? What are the things that you're not good at? What are your faults? Well, we've all got problems. Okay, well, what are yours? Do you know? Can you list your faults? Do you know them? You should. You should keep a running list of what your faults are. You should know them because they're problems. They're problems and they're weaknesses and they're things where you're prone to making mistakes and, and failing. If you don't know what those things are, you just walk around a world where there's booby traps everywhere and you don't even know what they are. You have to know your faults. You should be able to recite them. You should have them in front of your view and you should be ready to address them and deal with them and think about them and be proactive about trying to change them. This is what the process of being a disciple is, is looking at these faults in your life and saying, how do I make these things better? But if you don't know what they are, if you've never rehearsed to yourself your own faults, how, how, how do you know? How do you know where you might step out of the way? How do you know what God's trying, what might try to address with you? Well, I know, I know I, I, I often have the fear of man. That's a fault somebody could say. And you think about that and you pray about it from time to time and you know it's an issue in your life. I'm kind of a people pleaser and I, I'm prone to the fear of man. Well, that has to shape how you interact with something that somebody comes and tells you.
you have to lean against those things. But if you don't know they're there, you don't know how to do that. And practicing knowing your faults and, and like in your agape, when we come to the Lord's table and confessing your faults one to another, when we, when we do disciple work with one another in LDG or in other, some small group setting, or when we're in prayer with our brothers and sisters, or we're just in fellowship and we're talking about the, the difficulties and struggles of our lives, like enumerating your faults and knowing what they are and being able to, being able to see them for what they are. And that, that allows you to make space. Like it's a part of humility, right? To know that I have these problems. And so I'm, if, if I'm practiced at knowing those things, that I have weaknesses in my life, they're not just general vague things, but very specifically, I know I have a problem with this, this, and that. I know I'm weak here, here, and here. I'm practiced at knowing that there are places that God wants to speak to me. We should know that corporately. We should know where our weaknesses are corporately. They shouldn't be like taboos. It shouldn't be offensive to talk about places where the church is weak. I mean, we can do that honoring like you could do that with your brothers and sisters or your wife or your husband you can know the place they're weak but you could do that in an honoring way but it doesn't need to be ignorant like we don't have to be willfully ignorant we have needs we have weaknesses we have flaws don't hide from that because if you hide from that if you make it a habit of hiding from the things that you know are weaknesses in your own life or weaknesses in our community and you just try to ignore them or pretend like they're not there then you're going to miss the prophet when God comes to try to speak about those things. Practicing, examining, and knowing your faults is a good way to prepare for the prophetic. Another way is to make space for hard conversations. I would say... I would say I've had more hard conversations since I've lived in Boston than I have in the rest of my life together. And I've learned to recognize that that's a sign of health. It's also one of the, this phase of my life, I've grown more than many other phases of my life. And I think there's a correlation between those two things. Choosing to step into hard conversations is a way of practicing to learn to hear from the prophetic. Because you're, you're, you're in risky territory, right? There's potential for fallout and problems. And, and it's kind of like socially and spiritually and psychologically, it's a dangerous environment. And so you, you learn to be careful. You learn the tools to use when f tensions are high. You learn how to communicate in tense situations. And you learn how to listen to things that you aren't used to, that you don't want to hear or aren't used to listening to. And practicing hard conversations in your family, in your church, and in your work life, like, Learning how to have hard conversations well is practice for hearing from the prophetic ministry. Because all the tools that you use to try to make peace in your, in your relationships, in your world, all the tools that you use to try to reduce friction, how to hear each other when there's tension between you, all of those things are things that serve you when God wants to speak to the church about something tense too. It's like we do it with each other so that we can do it with God. Like there's a tense conversation between us and God that needs to happen about some infidelity in the church. And, and practicing the, how to have hard conversations helps us develop skill sets to how to have hard conversations with God.
when, when we assess these messages that come that we don't want to hear, that are hard to hear, look for the messages that increase holiness and purity. Like the consequence of, like, okay, so Sister X says this to the church, or Brother X says this to the church, and it's a hard message, and it's something generally we don't want to hear. But, but the fruit of that, the result of if we listen, is that it would increase holiness and purity in the church. That's a good metric that it's probably from God. Purity and holiness. If I listen to this message, would it make more holiness and purity in my life? Not would it make my life easier, would it make more purity and holiness in my life? And lastly, just the expectation for correction is also that that whatever needs to be corrected is not the status quo. It's not common. Like, if, if the prophetic message is to call God's people back to covenant faithfulness, that means that God's people are not being faithful in some way. So the status quo among God's people was that they were baking cakes to the queen of heaven in the temple courtyard. That was the status quo. That's what people had accepted. That was what was normal with them at that point in time. And the prophet comes and says, that's wrong. You need to repent. The, the message of the prophetic is not the status quo. So consensus isn't always a good idea for evaluating these messages. This, purity and holiness, is a much better metric than consensus when it comes to evaluating a prophetic message. I'm going long. I'm going to close with this. How do you recognize a false prophet? This is important. Let me read you one. I had a bunch of, uh, I had a bunch of messages, uh, quotes from the early church I want to read you, but I'm just going to read you this one. This is one of my favorites. <clears throat> it's from Hermas. Listen to what he says. I will tell you about both kinds of prophets, the true and the false. And then you can test the true and the false prophet according to my directions. You all know Shepherd of Hermas, right? It's an important early church document. It was an apocalyptic vision that Hermas has. Test the man who has the divine spirit by his life. First of all, he who has the divine spirit proceeding from above is meek, peaceable, humble, and refrains from all iniquity in the vain desires of the world. Isn't that interesting? In one of the most, one of the, I, I think I can say this, one of the most important early church documents there's a test for how to find a true and a false prophet. And he said, like, I think of the prophets as like these bold lions, right? They're screaming and yelling at everybody and telling them they're going to hell and all this terrible stuff. But for Hermas, the test of a true prophet is a humble, meek man who's living a holy life. He refrains from all iniquity and the vain desires of this world. He contents himself with fewer needs than those of other men, and when asked, he makes no reply, nor does he prophesy privately. The Holy Spirit does not speak when man wishes the Spirit to speak. Instead, it speaks only when God wishes him to speak. And it talks about how that looks. 
the, the life of the prophet is an important corroboration of his message. If his life doesn't bear fruit, I'm going to tell you right now, don't listen to him. I can say that because Jesus said it. If his message tickles ears and tells a group of people what they want to hear, he's probably not a prophet. If he lifts himself up and seeks reputation or power or prestige or control over other people, it's probably not a prophet. The prophets are kind of a lowly group of people. And you read through the Bible, the people in the prophetic class are not power brokers. They're generally like, I named my son Micaiah because it's my favorite prophetic story in the Bible. When, when the king of the north comes to Ahab and they listen to the 400 prophets who have a lying spirit in their, in, in, their, in their mouth, and they all say, go up to Samaria, go up to Samaria. With horns such as these shall thou push Samaria. Go up into Samaria, go up into Samaria. And the king, of, the king of the north says to Ahab, he says, isn't there anybody else? And Ahab says this, and this is why I'm going to name my son this. Yes, Micaiah but I hate him, for he always prophesies evil against me. I hate him. I do not want to hear from that guy. These are not, these are not the notable and the powerful. If, if a prophet's putting himself as the key to your access or obedience to God, if he's the necessary component to make things right, it's probably not a prophet. You can, another more subjective analysis for the false prophet is that they don't, the spirit doesn't convict with their message. Again, you have to be careful with that. I think it should be a part of an analysis with a lot of other things. But when God sends a prophet, conviction comes with the message because God's behind it for people that are willing to listen. And lastly, the last thing I want to say is that there's a line when we evaluate false prophets and who's who and what God's doing with this ministry in the church. There's a funny line between madness and the prophet. And what I mean by that is that these, there's a, there's a, um, In a historical analysis, retrospectively, we all appreciate Ezekiel. But if you had been there when Ezekiel was doing the crazy stuff that he did, I don't know if we would. The guy like picked up all this stuff and went to the edge of the wall of town and like started breaking out the wall and carrying all this stuff through the wall. At a certain time, he went into the middle of the, of the courtyard and he cut all of his hair off and he took a third of it and he threw it up in the wind and he took a third of it and he burned it in the fire. He did a lot of crazy stuff. And, and the same with Hosea and the same with a lot of these guys. There was a fine line between madness and prophecy. And there's a tendency to want to dismiss the prophetic as just crazy. And I don't think that the church needs to be subject to crazy people, because here's the fact. There's a lot of people who are just crazy who call themselves prophets. Always has been. All through history. We need these other metrics. Is God trying to speak to us? Are we open to hearing? Is conviction from the Holy Spirit coming? Is what they're saying contributing to holiness and calling us back to repentance? That's the way to analyze these messages. And then you don't have to worry about personalities and, and all this other stuff. Examine the message that way. Examine the life for holiness. 
And those are the those are the keys, I think, to hearing and responding from the prophetic message. Let me say one other thing, and this is important for how we establish churches and new church growth. It's how we establish ministries. When in order, like the reason for that, I've spent so much time and energy in looking at these these gifts, whether it's Romans or Ephesians. The reason it's worth it is because we really need to know who people are. It, 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 we need all of these gifts in the church. And what, what, what's really important, if it's a new ministry, if it's a new church, is that we analyze, we analyze these things and we say, what's missing, right? Like oftentimes, so when we started here, there was only three of us. Well, there's more gifts than there are people. Like in Romans, in Ephesians, like when you're starting small, sometimes you're missing pieces. Which pieces are you missing? If you start a ministry and everybody's, everybody's a shepherd, like you're going to do something great. Everybody's a shepherd. Where's the prophetic? Where's the apostolic? Where's the, where, where? Where's the other stuff? And if you don't have that, it doesn't necessarily mean God's not moving that forward. But the question is, how are you going to accommodate for what's missing? Where are you going to get that insight and that access and that knowledge that you need to be those things that Ephesians promises? How are you going to get that if you don't have it there? You need to have open eyes and open ears and be ready. Like, if it is from God, okay, so you're starting something and it's just a couple of shepherds, guys, and we're, we love everybody. We want to make people's lives better and all this stuff. But there's no prophetic insight. How is that going to happen? Where are you going to hear that? Who are you going to put in your life and around your ministry? Are you ready to hear when God does send somebody to say, you're off the track, this, is, this isn't going to work? You have to accommodate for that stuff. And knowing this about our body, about our groups, about ourselves, is an essential piece to creating balance and wholeness for the, for the purposes of the gospel and the kingdom. Okay, thank you for your patience, especially you children. I have Mr. Millian speaking for an hour and a half. You did good. Let's, let's pray and ask God to speak to us through prophetic ministers. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we want to give thanks especially for the gifts that Jesus brought bearing to his church. We recognize how valuable and how precious and how hard-earned these gifts that he brought to his people are. We love that you're providing for us through the apostolic gifts, through the prophetic gifts, the evangelistic, the shepherding and the teaching gifts. And we pray that these things would be perfectly aligned. We pray that we would see them for what they are, that we would esteem each other and esteem what you're doing in the body. Father, we love the beautiful symphony of your people. And we pray that you'd help us to recognize it for what it is. We pray, Father, that you'd strengthen us in, in our own giftings, strengthen us in our humility. And we pray especially today for our open ears to hear from who your prophets are. We pray that we would learn to recognize them and hear their words and correct our course. We want to be open to hearing from your people, Father, to call us to faithfulness. We pray that you give us a large ear, a large and open ear for this ministry. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>